You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast, your guide to the climbing community. Have you ever wondered what's at the root of Alex Honnold's need for speed? In this episode of the podcast, we sat down with the ever-fascinating Alex Honnold and put him in conversation with one of Ultra Running's forefathers and one of the inventors of the FKT concept, or fastest known time, the one and only Buzz Burrell. In this episode, we took inspiration from Alex, who blends sports like running and rock climbing to create massive link-ups like the Hurt and the Cuddle, to investigate the philosophies behind climbing speed records, ultras and mountain traverses and link-ups, Why are we so obsessed with speed in the mountains? How do speed records and first ascents play off each other? And what could putting ultra runners and speed record holders together in conversation reveal about these sports we love? The iconic Alex Honnold and Buzz Burl weigh in on all this and more. Since 1981, Outdoor Research has created trusted apparel, accessories, and equipment for you to thrive outside. Their award-winning outdoor gear is meticulously researched and tested for outdoor enthusiasts and military users around the globe. Grounded in their values of curiosity, passion, innovation, collaboration, and community, OR strives to create space for all in the outdoors. OR celebrates wins outside at every level together with their ambassadors, nonprofit partners, and employees. Check them out at OutdoorResearch.com. It's June, and the AAC is offering a limited edition t-shirt if you join the club, renew your membership, or donate $25. We're leaning into the Alpine in American Alpine Club with the epic retro mountain art on this tee. Each membership and donation helps support our work transforming the conditions for the send through advocating for our public lands and climbing access, building an inclusive climbing community, and educating all climbers. Use promo code ALPINESHIRT23 to join, renew, or donate between June 1st and June 30th, 2023 to get the limited edition t-shirt. Snag it now at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Okay. Well, Buzz and Alex, welcome to the American Alpine Club podcast. I would love to introduce you, but I'm not going to put that on myself. I'm going to make you introduce yourself because that's going to be too hard (laughs) for me to introduce you. Both have too crazy of a background, honestly. Let's start with Buzz. Buzz, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm from the town Glenn Miller made famous, Kalamazoo, Michigan. For some unknown reason, I started running, probably to impress the cute girl sitting across from me in 10th grade English class. Then I went to University of Colorado because I wanted to be in the mountains and took a climbing class from Cleve McCarty, co-author with Pat Amit of High Over Boulder, the original climbing guidebook, and whose son is now my orthopedic surgeon. So I've been running and climbing for a long time and did some other things along the way including working for La Sportiva, climbing and a running shoe company, and managed Ultimate Direction, where I popularized what is now called the running vest, and I co-founded Fastest Known Times, which popularized the FKT concept. And I haven't died yet. (laughs) 
Good to know. But, We're not talking about ghosts. You're getting close. <laughs> well, that's a good point there. Uh, yeah, my name is Alex Honnold. I'm a professional rock climber. That's my my standard. After Buzz's intro, I feel like I should spice it up a little bit, but but basically, I just do a lot of rock climbing. Yeah, and I would say like the maybe the most irrelevant elements of your resume to this conversation are the hurt, the cuddle, speed records on the nose, that uh, you know, the Yosemite triple crown, that sort of thing. So I definitely want to be focusing on those things because you do a lot of stuff. <laughs> so Yeah, I, w- I would say I'm a speed enthusiast or an interested <laughs> hobbyist. <laughs> and Buzz, like, how, what do you call yourself? I feel like there's like a identity crisis maybe in the outdoor community. We, like we need to identify ourselves by our sport, right? So Alex is oh. a professional climber. Oh, I see. By the sport. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm an adventurer. That's basically what I do, but I guess I'm certainly known as a runner, but that my, that's not my self description actually. Right now I'm in San Diego and Mission Bay where I brought my surf ski and I'm learning how to uh, wing foil or trying to learn how to wing foil. So I do different sports depending on, you know, the appropriate terrain, but I'm primarily known as a runner and I've done some climbing and a lot of scrambling. Cool. Alex, I wanted to note like, for the link ups and stuff they do, like especially the cuddle, there's running and or speed hiking involved, right? Like, is running a necessary evil, or do you actually like it? No, I think running is mostly a necessary evil. I mean, occasionally I'll have moments of of pleasure when I'm out jogging, but in general, in my climbing speed records, I've always sought out speed records that don't require approaches or descents. You know, I, I prefer doing climbing speed records where it's just climbing the vertical face. Mostly because anything that's a round trip speed record, which sadly most of the things in Colorado are round trip speed records, they they really all f- fall to trail runners eventually. You know, like the flat irons and and like the Longs Peak, by you know the biking to Longs Peak, all that kind of stuff. I mean, ultimately those are just tests of of cardio endurance, which you know as a non runner, I'm just never going to be good at those kinds of things. So I don't know. I mean, I, I would say that I I run. As, as like a very casual hobbyist, you know, like, oh, you know, I jog sometimes, but I'm just not a real runner. And so that means that for most climbing speed records, it, it kind of means that certain types of records are just totally out of reach forever. But then it leaves like the really technical, difficult things like big walls and stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. That's an interesting interface there, Alex. That's a good point, because like you say, eventually it's going to go to runner, like the long speed to mm-hmm. on. But that was founded by Neil Biedelman, you know, famous climber and Kevin Cooney, and then Roger Briggs took a go at it, and et cetera, et cetera. But it's interesting where that dividing line between running and climbing takes place. Like you say, you like it to be a little more climbing because no one's going to outclimb you for speed, while other people might outrun well, you. Well, a lot, a lot of people will. But <laughs> actually, yeah, a lot of people will outperform me in either, but I just feel like there's a sweet spot for me anyway that's where it's pretty hard climbing. And not too much running or I actually, and it's not even just because I'm not good at it. I actually don't, I I don't, don't really like speed records that involve the descent because hammering the downhills is just so hard on your body compared to like the actual climb because the climbing, even climbing as fast as you possibly can never really makes you that sore or like that likely to injure yourself because climbing is just never that fast. Whereas sprinting downhill as fast as you can, say from the top of Long's Peak back to the trailhead. I mean, that like that ages your knees, you know, like that is hard work on your body. That's a good point. But in terms of speed, you have the speed record on the nose twice. 
So you could you could move up that rock pretty quickly, and I think you could get up it quicker than a person could run up the trail. Well, no, no, you could run up the trail in forty five. I mean, Tommy has run up the trail in under an hour, no problem. Oh. So, but no, actually, so fun because this is a podcast on on speed. Uh, and actually, I think I wrote this up for the American Alpine Journal. Maybe when Tommy and I did the speed record on the nose, I was writing it up some little thing for the for the you know for the book for the year. And I was on a plane and as a little thought experiment, I started playing around with a pen and paper and was comparing the pace for world-class running efforts versus world-class climbing efforts. And so just like back of the envelope math, a marathoner, say a sub two hour marathon is, uh, is roughly double the pace of a nine second, hundred meter sprint. If that's like a world record performance to run a hundred meters in like roughly nine seconds. So, you know, I did the, the math for the pace and it was like, okay, running a sub two hour marathon is like at roughly half that pace. You know, it's like, if you're going to sustain something for two hours, you're going, you know, half the speed of, of world-class sprinting anyway. So then I applied that to the speed climbing wall in the Olympics, you know, the 15 meter, and that's five seconds for world-class speed climbers right now. And, uh, so if you went at half that pace, how fast do you think you could climb the nose? You mean even twice like, that pace. So if you have, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting bit of arithmetic. I can't hazard a guess. <laughs> so, uh, it turns out you'd be climbing El Cap in 12 minutes if you were <laughs> at half the speed of a world cup, uh, speed climber. And quick. so basically I, I, I use that to sum up my little article saying, you know, obviously there remains a lot of room for improvement in terms of the physical performance of, of climbing a 3000 foot wall. And then even if you compare it to the vertical K, which is what, like 35 or 40 minute speed record or something for runners to run a vertical K, you know, you're sort of like, well, if you think of El Cap as basically doing a vertical K, but truly vertical, you know, the limits of human physiology are closer to 40 or 50 minutes. So you would think that the El Cap speed record could get down to say an hour and a half if the right people were trying it and they had the right level of cardio and had it all memorized. Right. But then there's that technical aspect one must not neglect. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But the that is the part that's easier to learn. I mean, I, I think that's what I come back to with all the speed record stuff is that is that the technical aspect can be learned. And then eventually, no matter, you know, who, whoever learns it to a certain degree, it comes down to how good is your engine? Like, how fast can you move? Hmm. Interesting. I like that. Okay. Well, this is podcast. This particular episode is about the interface between running and climbing, which is kind of interesting. You talk about the cardio aspect. There's the Satan's Minion Scrambling Club yeah, in Boulder, yeah. Colorado. You've heard of that. Uh, our friend Bill Wright started it and still does it. And that was mainly climbers, right? Almost all climbers uh, going up the flat irons. Of but now dominated by runners. It kind of is. And I was the first kind of person coming in from that side of it. And as you just described, I did really well at that because I could basically you know, beat people to the base and coming off the top. And... I acquitted myself well on the face as well. But that is an interesting thing you described in terms of speed records is where do you draw the line? Where's the tipping point between running and climbing? But what you're saying is that it always it comes down to cardio. And you made a note that, wow, the nose record, cardio, physical. I guess for most people, it'd still be technical. <laughs> yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is that the technical side is just a matter of learning. Whereas the physical side is always what, what sort of underlies that, you know, it's like the, like, I mean, and, and you see that in, in climbing, like it, in terms of just climbing performance, like good technique will get you so far, 
but eventually it just comes down to how strong you actually are. Like, you know, what are your physical capabilities? Hmm. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. I don't know. So I'm just throwing the... things out there. I don't know if I totally agree with all this, but, <laughs> but I'm, uh, but I do think that, that most speed records, no matter how technical will ultimately come down to how, how good of an engine somebody has, because the technique side can be learned through a bit of preparation, through a bit of studying through, especially with the climbing records, just by talking to the people who have done it before and learning all the, the tricks from them, like for the mm-hmm. no speed record in particular, you can share beta with people and, and basically save a ton of effort that way. Right. But you still have to basically be able to free solo five ten cracks. Yeah, or actually ideally five eleven cracks, because that was one of my visionary contributions to the no <laughs> okay. speed record was to skip an entire pitch of eleven A and then use that uh, pitch to pull up your gear again. But right. Right. But, so yeah. I, I would not say this is a cardio test, but we can we can leave this as an interesting point to consider. But I appreciate the perspective, Alex. I mean, you have such extraordinary technique here, you know, okay. 2,000 feet off the deck, 511 crack, let's just flash it, you know, with, of course, Tommy, who can keep up. But then most people might consider that more technical than a cardio test. Yeah. It's it's hard to say, though, because the thing is, if you're competing for a no-speed record, you're climbing, you're already climbing at a high enough level that that type of climbing basically is aerobic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like... Mm-hmm. Like if you're, yeah. if you're trying to do the no speed record, you probably climb 514. And that means that all these 511 hand cracks are basically aerobic. Like you can just <laughs> maintain that pump for the whole. Well, I mean, and so, uh, yeah. I, have done the speed record on, um, do you know the root epinephrine in red rocks? It's like, yeah, classic yeah, Chinese. Class- it's like this, you know, 2000 foot five, nine thing. Uh, I went back and forth with, with Brad go before he died, uh, on the speed record on epinephrine. It was kind of a fun, friendly rivalry where we both his car couldn't make it out to the trailhead. So basically anytime I was going, he would try to hitch a ride out there. It was kind of a classic, but you know, so it was very friendly rivalry. It was whatever, but we went back and forth a bunch of times, but that's a speed record that really felt aerobic. You know, it's basically 30 minutes of running uphill as fast as you can, even though you are technically climbing five, nine and climbing difficult chimneys and whatever else. But both of us would be breathing super heavily. Your whole body would feel pumped. Like your big muscles would start to hurt. You know, and I was like, Oh, this is about as close to aerobics as Clinton gets. Nice. Uh, and of course, Brad had the, the record for a while. He went back and forth and Eldo on the naked edge route. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, yeah. Brad well. was very fast. <laughs> and bold. Well, yeah. nice. So running and climbing though. So you just said, Alex, that you're kind of like, eh, yeah, 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 about running, but you do it. I took a quick look here. You've done a few marathons. You've done a few ultras. And uh, of course you're the, probably the world's most famous climber. Sorry to say this. I know you're just going to, you know, punch me out next time you see me for saying this, but (laughs) you're a really well-known guy. I got to just spit that out there. And so there's a little bit of sandbagging here. Don't you think? I mean, you've done a bit of running. You did a, you know, two hour, I looked it up, a three hour, 33 minute marathon uh, a number of years ago. That's, that's credible. So you're not a bad runner. Yeah. I'd say it's not embarrassing, but for a professional (laughs) climber who hikes as much as I do and does all these things. I mean, I'd say my running is very mediocre, you know, or like plenty, plenty of people do far better than that with, with the same amount of effort. You know what I mean? Like I'm definitely not a gifted runner by any, also you should see how bad I feel at the end of, you know, it's like, yes, I've run one marathon and I've run a couple ultras and I feel completely busted afterward. So it's not, (laughs) you know, it's not, it's not a beautiful thing. 
<laughs> well, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Well, what would you say the intersection between climbing and running is? We talked about speed records right now, which is, you know, this is an amazing conversation, but I feel there is some intersection here in that they're both primal sports. You know, when you're five years old, you're going to start running. Mm-hmm. You're just going to run like a little kid. It's going to feel right. And if you see something going up, maybe you see a tree when you're six years old, you're going to try to climb it. So I feel that there's some similarity here between these two sports, just in terms of their primalcy. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think uh, I, I refer to it as like elemental movement patterns, like basic things like swimming, running, climbing, you know, things that any human would like to do to move through a landscape. I agree that they have that in common. Actually, I had a question for you, though, because um, you co-founded the FKT website, right? Or the sort of the concept of FKTs? Yes. Or did you? Yeah. So yeah. Isn't the FKT website, doesn't it uh, disallow technical climbing? Isn't it just trail running and, and sort of mountain scrambles? But, but yes. if anything's we predominantly don't... fifth class, you're not allowed to do FKTs, right? Or it doesn't go on the website. Uh, yeah, the, the latter. And that's simply a matter of credibility. You know, Hans was already doing you know, some speed climbing records. You know, there's other places that keep track of this. So in order to maintain maximum credibility and knowing what we're talking about, we say if it's more than, I think we said, 25% use of ropes or, you know, more than uh, 25%, 5.8 and above, because otherwise a lot of things get included, then now just put it somewhere else. That was more only, mainly for credibility. That's interesting, but there's nowhere else that is a, you know, sort of repository for climbing speed records. I feel like the FKT website actually could be a great resource for that. Dang, now you're getting on my nerves here because I agree. I agree a hundred percent. And I got a lot of comments on this and, you know, as, as a little dilettante climber, I felt the same way. Skiing, of course, I'm a paddler also, biking. So we had constant requests to include the other sports on the FKT website. My two partners were kind of done. They didn't have the gas. So we decided to sell it. We sold it a Hmm. a year and a half ago to this company you have probably heard of, Outside Magazine. Hmm. FKT is owned by Outside. Yep. And they just sat on it. They just sat on it. They're doing well, I could use an expletive, but let's Bump just kiss. say they Bump are kiss. not moving it forward. <laughs> so I was severely disappointed. As you know, it would have been a perfect venue to do all these other sports, and it's not happening, unfortunately. Interesting. That's funny. I'm like, what does Outside Magazine not own nowadays? You know, with, with owning all the climbing publications and, you know, all the... Do they own all the running publications as well? They own Trail Runner. Yeah, okay. They don't run on, on the ones in the UK. They own Yoga Journal. I mean, the, like you said, they're just, uh, they snapped them all up. But then right after they bought us, they laid off 18% of the workforce. And uh, nine months after that, they laid off another 12% of the workforce. So their business model currently is being severely reviewed by their investors. Yeah. Well, considering none of the things they bought up really made money to begin with, it is it was hard to understand how <laughs> aggregating a bunch of companies that don't make money was going to suddenly make money. I never quite understood the model because I was like, all these companies are barely scraping by only because the employees are super passionate and committed to it and everyone's trying their hardest, but they don't make any money. I'm kind of like buying well, you're, them all you're up. Selling them all short. You're selling me short. You're selling me short. I mean, you want to see my, my tricked out sprinter van out here in the parking lot? No, I don't have one. So you know, actually, you're correct. You're right. Well, I mean, I was thinking more specifically of, of Climbing Magazine and Rock and Ice Magazine and, you know, like all my friends who have worked at those publications and you're like, it's not like they're, it's you know 
it's I don't know. Right. I don't think anyone's right. making a lot of money in the magazine space these days. <laughs> like it's They're it's not. hard to say how They're you not. make well, a bunch of money buying them. Well, the whole thing has shifted. Of course, it was sub subscription based. That was you know newspaper. You bought a newspaper, just mm-hmm. delivered to your door every day. And then they got into digital advertising. That's how publications worked. It was through this uh, logarithmic model that they developed. So in a millisecond, you could sell ads all over the world, et cetera, et cetera. But banner ads, you know, selling for like three and a half dollars per CPM, you know, for a thousand clicks, didn't make any money either. So they moved to affiliate revenues. They started doing all these stupid, boring gear reviews. Gear reviews are just mm-hmm. everywhere. It's just so you can get affiliate revenue, but that wasn't generating any money either. So now they're gradually coming back to a subscription model, pay to play, and it's, uh, you know, you, you get what you pay for. There's no such thing as a free internet. Yeah, I just, I just, I mean, I know this is a bit of a detour from what we're supposed to be talking about, but <laughs> I, I just have a hard time seeing the outside subscription model actually working for them either. Because, you know, nowadays, every time somebody sends me a link to something and if there's a paywall, you're just like, okay, I guess I'm not reading it. Like, it's not like I'm going to subscribe <laughs> to some random thing like that. Kind of like, well, who cares? <laughs> Moving on. You know, it's like, because basically having the paywall is like you're competing in so much free content out there. It's like, it just, it's hard to imagine how that's like, I can see a paywall for like the New York times or something like super reputable journalism or whatever, you know, like the wall street journal, let's say, but for like outside content, come on, you know, you can just (laughs) surf Instagram and see all the same news from the people firsthand. You know, it's like, it's hard to see what they're really, I I pay for the New York times. So that's a good example, but right. But do you believe what you read on social media would be the rejoinder to that? Right. I mean, it's just for, for climbing news. No, but for climbing news, you would because it's all just firsthand somebody saying like, I did this thing or same with running news or FKTs or any of those kinds of things. If somebody says that they did a thing in the outdoor world, then they almost certainly did the thing. You know what I mean? Like nobody really lies about stuff like that. Right. That's true. But you wrote an article for AAC you mentioned a few minutes ago. And so you probably provide some context, some insight, some history, which is hard to get on a Twitter feed. Yeah, no, that's that's for. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I think there's a place for journalism. I just don't think the outside magazine is going to make money doing it in the outside <laughs> place. Well, their investors are asking that same question. Yeah, exactly, uh, <laughs> exactly. As, as they flee a sinking ship. Yeah. Okay, well, so <laughs> yeah, 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 can I bring sorry, us back Anna. to speed? Yeah. <laughs> my bad, my bad. Uh, Hi, Anna. Um, good to see you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there really is anything to this, but when I became aware of the FKT concept coming from a climber's, like I am a climber, like the, I do run now, but like 100% started being a climber and that's how I identify for sure. The thing about the FKT concept is it's got built in unknowns. It's fastest known time, right? Whereas I feel like the way that climbers treat speed records were like, yeah, that this is, we know everything that every person who has attempted this. We know the records, we've kept it, that sort of thing. And so I'm interested in that like built-in unknown that there might be a dark horse that just never reported on something or something like that. Like I'm interested, do you think that like that does happen? Do people like want to keep things on the down low and want to be undercover crushers both in the climbing world and in the running world? People do ghost routes, but I can tell you the history how that name got started if you want yeah, yeah, go on. And then I have something to say about the climbing history. So you, you go first. Well, believe it or not, the internet didn't always exist. What? <laughs> yes, sad, but true. And so as Alex just said, yeah, you can just look on social media and find out who did what. And people generally don't lie about it, which is totally true. But that didn't used to exist. So when, uh, my partner Peter and I went for the John Muir trail record in the year 2000, you couldn't tell who held it. I mean, you literally couldn't tell 
who had it. And so I actually went back to microfiche records at the LA Times and tried <laughs> to figure these things out. And as far back as you can go, things existed. You see what I mean? It's not like people would ask me, well, when did these speed records start? They started with the dawn of human history. It's like Alex said, this is part of what we do and have always done. And so fast as known time was literal. You see what I mean? There, someone could have come before you pre-internet and done something and just thrown down. And so you want to acknowledge that. You also want to acknowledge there's no official standing there with a stopwatch. And so you want to say, okay, we're believing in each other. There's a trust factor here. I think that, and I, and I, I totally agree with all that. I think that's that the fastest known time concept is the correct way for trail running and mountain adventures and scrambles, because you just never know if some psyched local just you know, as like a random training day, did that exact thing once upon a time and did it way faster. And you get that a little bit with climbing speed records where it's like some dark horse in some local area, like did a thing crazy fast because that's like part of their, their standard circuit. But I think part of the reason that climbing has a history of speed records is because it is slightly easier to know who's done what. And I'm thinking specifically of El Cap speed records, but there's just nobody who's ever climbed the nose and sub three even without other people noticing because there are other people there people watching you know there are fewer people with the skills uh for it it's a smaller community and so it's much harder for people to slip under the radar on some of the the prominent climbing speed records and so i think that that it kind of makes sense that a lot of climbing speed records are framed as the official record because it's not as if anyone's ever you know slipped by unnoticed like it's it's noticeable when someone climbs el cap you see it from the road you know, and if you see someone climbing all cap in two to four hour pace, you're like, whoa, like that's like you can visibly see it from the highway. You're sort of like they're moving pretty fast. So, you know, it's, it's harder for that to just go totally unnoticed. Right. Well, the granite crucible indeed. But you and Barad were trading back and forth in epinephrine. And before you guys did it, someone did it faster. Yeah, and... someone else did for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. I think. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. It's like it's basically only the big sort of centerpiece routes in climbing that, you know, like the Iger North Face or El Cap, things like that, where it's like everyone can see them from town and people know about them and, and relatively few people have the skills to do them. It's like those are the ones where you kind of know where the records are. But no, you're totally right that in local areas on on random routes. And this is actually why I think that climbing needs a, a repository for speed records, like something like FKT, because yeah, I mean, I actually almost wanted to start one for Red Rock, which is, uh, you know, outside of Vegas where I live, because I've done a lot of scrambling in Red Rock. And I kind of wish there was an easy place to know, like how other people have done on some of the things, just to just to have a sense of it, like, do other people do this? Do people like this? Like, how do they do it? You know, like, what's considered fast? Because w when you're doing that stuff in a vacuum, it's always, or it's more motivating right. to do it when you know other people are, are trying as well. Another aspect of human nature, indeed. Yeah, exactly. Dang, exactly. Alex, you're 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 you're, re, you're giving me great remorse again about fastest known times. Boy, we left a lot on the table there, didn't we? Well, it seems like the company, uh, you know, outside will probably go under soon. You can just buy it back. <laughs> it, it probably it probably half the uh, you know half the price. Oh boy, just, okay. Just plant well, a seed, uh, and if you do, you should open it up. Oh, oh, right. to totally. other other sports. Absolutely. Biking and climbing first. 
for sure. Because mm-hmm. the, the, the bikers, there's a big controversy a couple of years ago on the Great Divide Trail, things like that, FKT on that. And a couple of people called me up, asked my opinion, said, I, I can't comment on that because unless we look into it and make a real clear determination, I don't really want to enter into it. But yeah, well, thank you, Alex. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll see if there's a round two on this. Something to consider in retirement, you know, something to stay motivated for. It's like, I'm buying back my company for half the price. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Hannah. So you, you're you a climber and you've done a little running. So Hannah, what do you think? We're talking here about running and climbing, the interface between the two. What, what do you think, Hannah? Well, I honestly, I wanted to ask like a pretty direct question, which I think a lot of people have already had answers to, but I'm intrigued in your each of your individual answers. Like, I'm coming from a tr- like a climbing background where the deep, deep history and the value climbers put on like the cutting edge is on first ascents, right? The first person to do something. And so I'm really interested in why does speed matter? And is it just a fir- like, how does it interact with first? Because it seems like in the mountain running world, first matter a whole lot less than speed. And then there's like, a growing, I would say, obsession in the climbing space with link-ups and speed and like doing that sort of thing. So I'm interested in why does speed matter? And then what does it have to do with like first and first ascending? I don't know, Buzz, Buzz, your take first. I'm still, uh, I'm still formulating a genius idea here. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was a good observation, Hannah. Indeed, uh, climbing is, is shifting from you know the first ascent into speed, while things like running and other sports have always been about speed, because it just comes down to, as Alex said a few minutes ago, homo sapiens want to measure ourselves. That, that's, that's kind of part of literal human nature, is where, where's our mark on the wall in relation to other people? And this can be sort of negative and competitive, or it can just be positive and stimulating, that stimulates you to, to do your best. And I guess I would say that for hundreds of years to be the first at the top of a mountain was kind of obvious. And now someone's going to challenge me on this, but most mountains have been climbed. And so to see how fast you can do them, be the next thing to take a look at. Yeah, actually, I I totally agree with Buzz on this. And, And actually, I think you're right that, I mean, most mountains have been climbed. And so realistically, speed is just an easy way to, to do another first, you know, it's like to do something, but I mean, but that's kind of, you know, when you get into human nature, that's kind of like the the base version of it where it's like, oh, you know, well, that's that's almost profane. You know, you're just trying to compete with other people. But I think like the one of the ways that I think about speed is that as an individual, it's a nice way to measure your own progress over time, over seasons. You know, and I've spent so much time in Yosemite over the years. And my my big goal for my very first year in Yosemite was to climb El Cap just to get up the nose. And we climbed it in a day. It took us I think it was 22 hours we got completely worked it was the total debacle and so then to come back let's see it would have been six or seven years later that i first did the speed record with hans and we did uh i forget but 220 or 230 or something and so you know that was our big improvement and then to come back with tommy and go sub two hours that felt like an equally large improvement over the time with hans mostly because as you get closer to two hours it all starts getting exponentially harder and you know it's harder to shave minutes off but you know, so for me to have this benchmark to work against over, let's see, over 12 or 14 years of my climbing life, you know, it's nice to have those times. It's nice to have something to work against. Like, you know, I think that's the the best case scenario for keeping track of speed and time. So you're like, well, I'm just trying to measure my own performance and to try to improve over time. Right. 
I, I agree completely. It's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. We want to I know. realize our potential, and this is a good way to make a mark. Yeah, a lot of a lot of climbers poo-poo speed stuff, but I'm the guy who keeps track of my time on the approaches to different crags and the descents off different crags and how long I spend on different routes. And part of it is because I'm curious how long it takes. You know, I'm just interested. Part of it, and especially in, in Red Rock, uh, you know, I did the, the big Red Rock Traverse recently and um, spent quite a bit of time, like a couple months over the last couple of years, soloing routes in Red Rock to try to piece together this whole traverse. And I was pretty meticulous about always having a timer going, always sort of having GPS, keeping track of where I was going, how long it was taking. And, you know, part of that is because I care about the speed records and all that stuff. Part of it is so that I can tell my wife realistically, like when I'm going to be home for dinner, you know, things like that. Because, you know, if you're like, oh, I'm going up and over Mount Wilson, up and over Indecision Peak, I'm going to try to go down a new canyon and then I'm going to run back along the flats back to my car. I'm like, who knows how long that's going to take. But, you know, because I keep track of it all the time, I can say realistically, like that'll probably take seven or eight hours, you know, if I'm lucky, unless I botch the descent, then it could take nine, you know, and then if I'm halfway through, I can text her with a with a reasonable update, like I will be home in four hours, like for sure, you know, and so there is something to be said for keeping track of your timing all the time, just, you know, just for life. Excellent. I like the way that uh, I think Hans kind of shifted the game a little bit because like you said before that people kind of went, yeah, 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 particularly the mountaineers you know this is a pure sport you're doing it for the love of being out there etc and i think hans kind of broke a little psychological barrier and so i appreciate the fact that you time more things than i time so uh, that's, that's good <laughs> i mean even this morning i was going bouldering with uh with with my friend to go try this thing and we parked and i looked at my my clock and i made a mental note of like how long it took us to hike into the boulder mostly because i was just kind of like and you know it only took like 14 minutes or something but i was kind of like is this parking better than the other parking like you know because i had looked at it the other day and i was like is this actually closer because we tried a different place and i was like well there's only you know the only way to know something for sure is to measure it and so i was kind of like well I was like, oh, yeah, the, no, this parking was definitely slower, but more convenient overall. So I'm like, OK, you know, it balances out. Efficiency. I love it. Yeah. I should take some cues from you. This is this is good <laughs> info here. I, I, I'm, I'm going to up my game starting now here. I, I think most people just consider me a tweaker. But <laughs> <laughs> but the, what popped up for me in my mind when you're talking about that is getting to know things. Like when you did your big Red Rocks Traverse. And you had to project it. You had to figure it all out. And so on my big traverses or link-ups, as they often say in climbing, that's the, the most memorable aspect for me was not doing it. It was the figuring it out. It was learning it. It was learning about our natural world. Uh, whether it's Zion done a bunch of stuff in Zion and some stuff in the park, you have to figure it out. You have to spend time. And following, downloading someone's GPX file isn't really the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's why climbers put a, such an emphasis on firsts, because doing the first is often so much harder. And that's actually, I mean, like with the Red Rock Traverse I just did, it took me months of root finding and piecing together and figuring it all out. And now if somebody wants to do the second, uh, you know, it's not an ascent, but like the second traverse of the range, I can just send them my GPX file and they can basically just follow the thing the whole time if they can down solo 5.8 in their tennis shoes. <laughs> but, you know, but... They may want to do a few workarounds. Whoever does the second might might pioneer a few different things. But in general, it's so much easier to follow a route that's already established. And I mean, that's just yeah, that's just part of the sport, I guess. Wait, so I wanted to drill deep. This is like something I want to drill deep into because I'm really interested right now. I think that there's a larger conversation in climbing with like 
grade chasing is somewhat of a problem for like the plebs of the world who aren't you, Alex. <laughs> um, and like, why are we so obsessed with grades? And then a lot of people coming up with different types of goals that like are not just fixating on grades. And they like think about like, I'm going to do a hundred double digit boulders this year or something, right? They're like trying to expand the way we make goals in climbing. Um, and I feel like both of you have a sixth sense for coming up with creative goal making, right? Like both of you have pioneered like crazy link ups or just like come up with something like new to do and try and test yourself against. And it's, and I'm just interested in why. And then again, more into that, how you did it. Cause you guys are both talking about how fun it is to piece that together, right? Like, so why do you do it? And then what, how do you, like, what are the steps to creating that type of really unique goal? Hmm. Well, in terms of the steps, it's getting to know a place. That's at least that's for me. I'd like to hear what Alex thinks about that. But for me, I like to learn about the natural world and I tend not to download other people's GPX files. I actually almost never do it. I, I go out to places I like, like Canyonlands National Park. I did a route I called the triple track where I went through Island in the Sky District. Then I swam across the Green River and went through the Maze District. And I swam back across the Colorado River and then went up through the Needles District and swam back across the Close the Loop. And it's like, wow, this is insane country. I'm getting to explore how, all this stuff. How long did that take? Or like, how well, big I, is that outing? It sounds It's crazy. about 100 miles, about 100 miles. And I kept trying to do it in one day and I kept failing. But that's because they had to work out piece by piece. You know, you had the little tricky down climb. So you had to work out all the little ways to do it. So finally, after two tries, I gave up and took a sleeping bag and did it in two days. Hmm. <laughs> like two, two fun days or two heinous days? Too fun. Yeah, yeah. I just said yeah. it was in the bag, at taking a sleeping bag, right? Yeah, like you knew you'd be fine. Right, right. Just like the LA freeway, a route that I created above Boulder. It's, you know, it's it certainly has been done in a day, but by the time I created it, I was a little long in the tooth. And so I did it in two days, you know, just start when it got light, finish when it got dark, start the next time it got light. So it was a two good days. I originally thought it was going to be one day, but I realized I probably couldn't do that, but still I got to explore some really cool terrain. That was my motivation. Fun, uh, fun fact, uh, the season that we did the cuddle, I really wanted to do the, the LA freeway also. Cause that's, I've never been in any of that part of the mountain range at all. So I've never gone South from Rocky. I've barely been in Rocky mountain national park besides doing the cuddle. So I was like, Oh, the LA freeway would be amazing. You know, I traverse this whole mountain range. I'd know nothing about it. It'd be incredible. But then I basically didn't think I could do it in a day. It all felt just a little too big. I was like, that is that is just too far. I was like, I'm going to be crushed. And I didn't quite know how to do the logistics with water and food and like dealing. And it's like, I don't know if I can carry that much water for that far. And so ultimately, it just felt like too much. And and after doing the cuddle, I was pretty, pretty content anyway. But um, but yeah, I, that's still something that's like on my life list for big adventuring. Excellent. Good. But there you go. You have to learn how to do it. Yeah. You know, Killian yeah. Jornet can't show up and do these things, even though he's got the best cardiovascular fitness of anyone in the world, probably. But, you know, you have to learn the route. You have to figure these things out, which to me, again, Hannah, is what I enjoy the most. And as Alex just said, oh, man, it's going to be too hard. You know, you're going you're gonna to feel too wasted. Then you get into the you know, the type three fun where you just got this goal and you're trying to achieve this goal. And you're willing to do anything to achieve it. And, you know, that's fair enough. Plenty of people do that. I personally don't do that. I kind of want to keep I know, the that, fun that factor sucks. in there. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really like that part either. That's the thing is, especially when you're doing firsts, if you're not really having a good time, like, does it matter? Like, if no one else has ever done it. There's no competition. There's no, there's no requirement. You're kind of like, if you're not having a good time, then just don't do it. You know, it's like the whole point is to go out there and, and do something that you're excited about and proud of and having fun doing. It's like, if it's not fun, you know, don't, I don't know. That was, that was right. one of the main cruxes with doing my Red Rock link up is that I'd envisioned something a little bit bigger and more grand, but then I sort of ran into my physical limitations at around hour 24 and, you know, sort of toned it back a little bit. But then I w- wasn't sure if I was motivated to even finish what I did do because I was like, oh, I'm not even doing what I set out to do. It's like, do I even care? But then I was like, you know what? I'm never going to do this again to try to do it better. Because I was like, this is just too much soloing in Red Rock. I was like, you know, someone else can do this better if they want to, but this is good enough. And so I just kind of like hiked out to the end and called it, called it good <laughs> enough. Even though there were some other peaks I could have gone over at the end. But I'm like, just, you know, it's like, this is this is good. 32 hours or whatever it was, was, was sufficient. Nice. Right. These are great little demarcation points, aren't they? The thought process alone, I think, is wonderful to hear about. So thanks for sharing that. But then I must mean I have to ask you about your Fitz Traverse. So what category would you put that in? Well, that wasn't exactly fun, but the Fitz Traverse was, it's kind of different. <laughs> I mean, it, in some ways it was more fun because, you know, I was with Tommy. We were having a good time. We're laughing. It's all, it's all pretty good. But the Fitz Traverse, though, had a much more clear objective. Like you had to go to the summit of the Seven Peaks, and otherwise you do whatever is easiest to get to them. I think, and actually, and so Hannah, when you asked about goal setting, I think this is an important part of goal setting: is that for me, a good goal should feel uncontrived. So you want to be doing the easiest possible way to do a very difficult thing. And so something mm-hmm. like the Fitz Traverse, you're trying to summit these Seven Peaks, and anything else goes like you literally do anything to get to the top of these seven mountains in a single outing you know and it's and as it turns out traversing the skyline and repelling the phase like that is just the easiest way to do all seven at once you know and so you know i think a good goal should feel uncontrived in that way like you should be doing the most elegant solution to a natural problem basically it was like well this is a very challenging thing to do but i'm doing it the easiest way possible but that's still actually quite challenging Totally agreed. I think that's so key. If you have to establish all these different rules and regulations and parameters, then it's like, well, yeah, it's like, who cares? What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? You you figure that out. Let me know when you got that done. That's why I like the LA freeway. You don't even need a map. Like you said, you could be out there all day doing the whole thing. You don't need a map. Map doesn't accomplish anything. If you stand back by Longmont or Boulder and look to the west, that's the route. You're just you're looking at. <laughs> Should, should we just clarify that the L.A. freeway means a giant mountain traverse in Colorado and not an actual freeway in L.A., in case anybody doesn't know that? Yeah. <laughs> You're probably right. You're probably correct. So L.A. is a little planned words, but it stands for Long's Peak to Arapaho Peak also. So it's obviously oh, see, I didn't know planned that. words. Oh, oops. <laughs> yeah, Long's to Arapaho. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Classic. I mean, I knew it was, I knew where the route was, but, but I've never been to the Arapaho peaks like at all. What is it? The Indian peaks or whatever it's called, all the little summits out there. I've, I've never even seen any of those. So yeah, but. the Indian peaks, you know, 25 miles from Boulder wilderness area. So it's, it's extremely nice and you just get up on top and you just stay on top until you get it done and by going north to south like that, you end up finishing on a wrap hole, but there's these irritating gendarmes at the end you can't figure out whether to go over them, left of them, to the right of them. And so you're kind of warped. And so it's, 
you know, having some stamina and having done it before really helps. And then you come across you know, a crashed airplane. It's just this wreckage of an airplane that didn't quite make it over the pass. So the LA freeway, you know, it, it, it's a good name, I think. It's kind of modeled after climber names, which tend to be a little bit irreverent at times. Hmm. Speaking of gendarmes, uh, that made me think of the Grand Traverse and the Tetons, which is yeah. something I've only done once and I did with with no real beta and no plan and no map. And I was trying to be with some people, but then they bailed. And so then I wound up finishing by myself with like no idea where I was going. And so from the top of the Grand Teton, uh, I ran into this friend up on top who was guiding somebody. I was like, oh, cool. And then he pointed out all the remaining summits. But, you know, I didn't oh, wait, really which know. Which direction were you going? Which direction? Uh I guess north to south. Isn't that the way everybody so you started with Team is it? So yeah, you went with Timon Timon Owens Grand. Okay. I don't even know what Owens is, but yeah, but then did the Grand. But the main thing that I remember is that I remembered because from the Grand you go to middle, right? And then yes. there are a bunch of smaller sub things along the ridge. But basically after I summited middle, I had no idea what was a gendarme and what was actually a summit because they're all just like big chunks of rock. And so I just went up and over every single thing along the ridge because I just didn't know. And then it turns out a bunch of them, you're supposed to kind of go around and do like third class routes up the back of them. But, you know, if you're just trying to stay on the ridge and go straight, you're like, well, I just go up and over each one. And then uh, I never even really knew when it ended. And it turns out on the last one, which I don't remember the name of, you're supposed to backtrack and then take some trail back out. But I just kept going down the ridge for Ooh. a ways and it drops into Ooh. these crazy chasms of doom. And I wound up right. and I could see people like across the canyon from me hiking on the normal trail, like kind of a ways away. Right. And I was like, I yeah. should be there and I don't know how to get there. And it wound up turning <laughs> totally epic at the end. I was like, man, this is why you have a plan. Yeah. That's, that last time was called Nez Perce, Nez Perce. Yeah. You definitely oh, yeah. want to backtrack on that because then you drop into Garnet and it's just a cruiser out. But if you kept going off the east side of that, ooh, yeah. Okay. I kept going down into one crazy canyon. I was like, this is getting pretty real. And then I down climbed into a second crazy notch and I was like, this is too real. And then that one I dropped and there was like ice and snow, like some, you know, snowy cooler at the bottom. And in the bottom of that one, I basically just escaped with my life and bushwhacked back over to the normal trail because I was just like, survive, you know, like flee the ridge and then then carried on. But I was like, someday I need to do that whole traverse again and see if it feels a little, uh, see if it feels any better as an adult, basically, because I kind of did it before I knew anything <laughs> about anything. <laughs> well, if you can free solo the North Ridge, you're good. Yeah. North Ridge. I think I did the North Face, a 5.8 or something up the front. I don't know. Normally on, it's on, on the, the ridge. Grand. I, I, yeah, on the Grand, yeah. I mean, you drop into the Gunsight Notch, and then you, you yep. come out of that after Owen, and then there's the North Ridge. You just start right up that. Yeah, so it's the, the North Face, you'd have is to it, drop Is there a 5.8 the up the North Face? Uh, only a variation. Oh, okay, maybe I didn't do that. Maybe I did. Okay, I don't know. The North Face is a little easier. Huh. I'm not sure what I did. I definitely didn't go to a glacier. I just remember it all <laughs> felt pretty mega. I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's a classic. I think Rollo still is Rollo. No, no, no. Rollo had the working no. on for a long time. Yeah, it's, it's been broken now. That's been broken. That's right. Nice. But nice. this is well, why we you... need FKT for climbing. Like that's the kind of oh, stuff man. that should be on an so FKT you're... website. <laughs> you're you're on me again, Alex. But actually, or maybe that one maybe is. you should start a new. Uh, maybe you should start the FKT for climbing. <sighs> okay. All right. I would... uh, well. <laughs> You would, you would participate. Is that what I'm hearing? I, yeah, I'm like, I would maybe go in on it with you because I've thought about doing it for Red Rock, just starting a... Because for a while, Hans did that for Yosemite, but I feel like he doesn't right. really anymore. And even Yosemite doesn't have a great list of speed records anymore. 
I mean, right? it, you know, it does. Some of the guidebooks have some lists here and there, but um, I don't know. But there's no great master list of of Yosemite speed records. No, there isn't. And when we started the FKT website, Killian Jornet sent me a spreadsheet that he had been keeping for years, you know, about hmm. the speed records in the Alps, which included for those people, you know, ski mountaineering, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, they, they just, you know, Hannah, in terms of our conversation here, they in the Alps just blend it all together. They don't make big distinctions. So you're probably a ski mountaineer, you're probably a climber, you're probably a mountain runner, and they just kind of blend them all in. So his database, his spreadsheet, was for all those just mixed in together. I think that that idea of them blending all the disciplines together goes back to the idea of the simplest solution to a difficult problem. You know, it's like, if it makes more sense to ski the mountain at the right time of year, then that should be the FKT. You know, it's like there's certain ways where you just do whatever is most elegant. Like, what, what is the fastest way to travel through this train? And if it's to wait until springtime when you can ski back down, then it's like, yeah, that probably is the best way to climb a mountain quickly. I, just, I like when there are no rules on it. It's like you do whatever is fastest, except for maybe paragliding, which is, to me does feel like a slightly different sport. Because <laughs> you know, if you fly off the summit, that does kind of feel like cheating. But, yeah. <laughs> or, or at least it's a whole different thing. Maybe not cheating because it is rad, but. So what you're saying is making me wonder about one of my questions was, you know, sometimes the most elegant solution is free soloing. And it's really so like it is a solo endeavor. There is like you you're not supported if you're doing an FKT run or something or maybe it is that you're supported. So I'm interested in that dynamic of like sometimes speed has to involve another person or other people who are supporting you. And sometimes it doesn't. Right. Like you're like you want to do it as quickly as possible and you have to do it by yourself in order to do that. So I'm interested in that dynamic of like, is that just another way to categorize? And yeah, is that just another way to categorize the way speed works um, depending on the style or whatever, if you're involving another person? Cause I know that the, like on FKT.com there's obviously it's like supported, unsupported, those types of, what is the word I'm thinking of? Distinctions. Categories. Yeah. Like, yeah, something like that. I mean, I don't know. Thoughts? Well, to me, I think that, I don't know. I, I think that has more to do with what kind of personal experience you're looking for in the in the thing that you're doing. And I think mm-hmm. that that often is just based on the objective. I mean, some objectives, it makes sense to just wander by yourself in the desert for a day or two, and it'll just be this incredible outing. Uh, for other things, it just doesn't totally make sense because it'll maybe you know diminish the quality of your experience if you have to carry a bunch of extra weight the whole time. So for the Red Rock Traverse that I did recently, I knew that I was going to get supported because I knew it was going to take more than 24 hours. And so I knew that that would be at least a gallon plus of water. And there was just no way that I was going to free solo all these routes with, you know, say 15 pounds on my back or, or more when you count all the food and other things. And so I was like, well, there's no chance that I'm doing this self-supported. And frankly, it would feel stupid to do it self-supported because, you know, the whole time you're doing the Traverse, you see the highway below you. And I live there. Like all my friends live within 15 minutes of the trailheads. You know, my friends want to help. Like people are around. Like it would feel a little bit silly to carry a ton of weight the whole time and basically go slower and have less fun when all of my friends are willing to come in and meet me in different places and and bring me a couple liters of water and some snacks. So, you know, to me, that's the obvious like, oh, I'm going to just do this supported because it's more fun. It's simple. It makes sense. But then there are other sorts of objectives where getting support is logistically way more complicated and maybe has less of an impact on your overall experience where you're like, you know, I can just carry it myself because I'm carrying a bunch of weight anyway. Like what difference does an extra couple liters of water make, you know, or whatever. Depends on what type of records you're doing. But I don't know. What do you think, Buzz? That's so true. 
Uh, it's, I think you said it so well in that do it works because we used to get all these people asking tons of questions and they get into these bitter arguments about supported and unsupported. And I say, just do what works and just drop these distinctions. It doesn't make any sense. For mm -hmm. example, people have done the Colorado Trail, which is about 500 miles from Denver to Durango, and they've done it unsupported, which means they brought all their own food and water, not water, all their own food with them. And you're crossing Interstate 70. You're walking right through the town of, of, of Breckenridge. Uh, so why not just stop in and get a bite to eat at Taco Bell? I mean, but they're not. Doing yeah, that's, like that. that's exactly. Yeah. So, no, that, that's the kind of thing where like to call it unsupported. Actually, this is a this winter. I did a trip to Antarctica and climbed some mountains, did some stuff. And it's interesting because in Antarctica, there's this whole weird like all the polar crossing stuff, the Antarctic crossings. Uh, they all have such, you know, you were saying bitter arguments about supported versus unsupported, whatever. So the people doing unsupported crossings of Antarctica ski past the South Pole like the station at the South Pole and they don't go in, they don't hang out, they don't get a meal, they don't get any water. And I'm like, can you imagine skiing for 30 days by yourself and then not going in to hang out with fellow humans at the South Pole? Like it's totally <laughs> stupid just so that you can che check the box saying that you did it unsupported. I'm like, that is completely dumb. But then the bummer of it is that like in, in any sane world, you would stop at the South Pole, you would have one night of partying with the only humans that you're seeing for the whole trip. And then you would carry on to the end and be like, what an incredible experience. But the problem is that then that puts you in the same category as people who are supported by airdrops along the way and food caches in different places and like fresh skis that are freshly waxed every, you know, 10 kilometers or who knows, you know, it's like basically as soon as it's supported, then it, for some people that means like an insane level of support. And then you're like, well, I don't want to compete in that category. So I guess I'm going to not party with the people on the South pole. And you're like, well, that's totally dumb. I don't know. That's. I think that's the the downside of of records and categories and all that kind of stuff is that when it compromises the real experience. Alex, if I start a new fastest known time website, you will be our spokesperson. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. I love I mean I love all this stuff. I was like, yeah, I'm psyched on speed. <laughs> you are. No, that and that's exactly right. It's just stupid. But but what you the drawbacks you describe are completely true. For example, on the JMT, the John Muir Trail. You know, a 223 mile trail, one of the best long trails in the world. And uh, a French person is a really good guy, Francois Dion. He has the supported record, but he had race type support. And he comes over from France. And so he's got people jogging next to him, you know, handing him water bottles versus someone, you know, every other, you know, once a day is going to be met and be resupplied. So to go unsupported or self supported puts you in a different category which is kind of helpful in that circumstance. So it just becomes a good discussion. I think our bottom line at fkt.com is just tell people what you did. Don't mm -hmm. worry about it. Just be honest and let people judge for themselves because, you know, you only answer to yourself anyway. Mm -hmm. No, it's, yeah. That, I mean, that's always been a mantra in climbing is just be honest about what you do. Be honest about your style and everything else is, is fine. You know, there are no real rules. Just be straight up about the way you did it and other people can choose if they want to do it that way or not. Right. So I, I have to ask Alex is, uh, because, you know, you're this famous guy. And so runners, you know, there's no, um, uh, there's no good running movie has ever been made. Well, maybe chariots of fire, you know, there's no, <laughs> 
Red Road Rendezvous being held in Las Vegas every year. Uh, no, but so dude, people, the, the 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 strip marathon. What's that called? The Las Vegas marathon thing where they run on the strip. I mean, that is an insane run, and people love that. that is, people come from everywhere. They love that. And actually, and what yeah. about uh, what about Prefontaine? That's a movie with uh, with freaking Jared Leto, pre uh, oh, pre Oscar totally glory. Right. Pre, but that's pre, and that's a oh, great yeah, uh, okay. that's a great film. Good call. Good call. Well, Pre was a great guy. I mean, right. You know, if, if, if you're not doing your best, you're not honoring your gift. Yeah, good call on that one. But still, runners are going to say, hey, you know, who's what famous person is running? You know, Lance Armstrong did the New York City Marathon, being paced by Joni Samuelson, who kind of dragged his sorry butt in under the wire there. But how about you? People want to know what's your next running trip? You got any more? ultra races you're going to do or just going to stick to the uh link ups no i i am i'm uh okay well so random story and i actually don't know if this is true but i've now said this several times so i kind of hope it's true but i'm pretty <laughs> sure that uh that conrad anchor once told me that uh once he had kids like once he was a father he tried to climb all cap once a year and run an ultra marathon once a year as a way of just sort of maintaining he was just like oh it's a good base for fitness and so through his years as a, as a father he was trying to climb all cap and run an ultra once a year. And so I was like, oh, for me, that's a good, you know, I had my daughter last year and uh, I was like, oh, this is a cool fatherhood goal. It was like run an ultra once a year, climb all cap. And for me, you know, ideally free all cap once a year. And so um, not free solo, but, you know, do a new free route or something. And so I was like, oh, it's just a nice fitness goal, you know, to maintain a base level of running. And I've never, as I was saying, I've never really had a great base level of running fitness. Like I've whipped myself into shape and done a couple you know, like marathons once or a couple times, but it's always been kind of terrible for me. And so I was kind of hoping that as I, as I get older, I could like run a little more and maintain a little more of a base and do, you know, one big run a year. So I am hoping to do some ultra this year, but we'll see. I don't know. Last year I ran the, the Red Rock ultra just because it's, it's near and dear. You know, I'd been spending a ton of time doing the Red Rock traverse. And so I knew all the trails really well. It's close to home. It all felt, you know, very fun and local and sort of like down home. I think that for me, one of the challenges of running ultras is finding one that doesn't feel contrived or kind of silly or too much work. I, I don't know. Like, so any ultra that's like an out and back or anything like that, I'm like, no, like I want to do a point to point traverse of a cool terrain. You know, I want to go somewhere neat. I don't want to run on pavement really. You know, it's like, I don't want to do like weird spirals at the end to make sure the mileage hits the right number. <laughs> like I hate that kind of stuff where it's like you run this really cool loop and then you do this like extra loop at the end. You're like, come on. Like, I don't know. Just do the route. Just do, get a good route. Just run it. Call it good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. Like I'd rather run a really cool, you know, 27 mile run. That's like not quite a 50 K, but it's like an incredible route. <laughs> We're going to rule out Badwater as a potential event. <laughs> yeah. But actually doing the Badwater to Whitney, the bike and hike, I'm sort of into. And I want to do that sometime because going from lowest to highest makes sense to me. There's like an elemental appeal to that. We're like, well, that's cool. You cross the mountain ranges, you climb the highest peak in the continental U.S. Like it's cool. It makes sense. But as long as you bike the first part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For biking, for sure. But somebody at Sportiva reached out about potentially uh, like asking if I was interested in running Leadville. And I was like, oh, you know, that'd be interesting. Like, so I looked it up and then I was like, wait, it's a 50 mile out and back. I was like, there's no way in hell that I would ever run 50 miles and then turn around and run it back. I was like, that sounds terrible, like terrible. You know, I was like, and especially because it traverses all these incredible peaks. And I was like, I could see doing a 50 mile point to point where you summit all the peaks along the way. 
but I can't imagine doing that and then turning around and going back. You're like, who cares? And it's like, you just saw right. all that. You know, it's like, it doesn't right. make any sense. Well, it makes a little sense because lots of receivers at the sponsor. <laughs> no, it makes sense why they asked if I want to do it, but it doesn't, I don't understand why anyone would sign up for a race where they do 50 miles one direction and then turn around and do the exact same 50 miles going back. <laughs> right. It's just no, going to be is, a worse version is, yeah. of what they just did. It's like, <laughs> like they have this beautiful run in the mountains is beautiful and scenic and incredible. And then they turn around and they do the same run in the dark when they hurt. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> This is great. You're going to be an excellent spokesperson. You're going to get people so revved. Uh, they're just going to want to just jump out of their chairs and just sign up for this stuff. This is this is terrific. Yeah, so, and start doing uh, free soloing speed records. That's perfect. I love love advocating for that kind of stuff. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. So I have a kind of mundane question that I think might be very interesting. From my experience, running culture, especially ultra ultra culture, is just freaking obsessed with food, right? Everyone is talking about fueling yourself and like what that takes. And it's so complicated and logistics and all of this stuff. And so, and I just like helped crew my friend do a hundred mile ultra uh, this weekend. And I was like really in it. And I was like, wow, this is so intense. I can't believe this is this intense. And I was like, wait a minute, did Alex eat anything when he was doing like the speed record on the nose? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like climbers, when we do speed stuff, we don't talk about food or fueling the same way that runners do. And so I'm interested in like how big of a logistical issue is that for climbing? And then if Buzz, you can tell me a little bit more about the the refueling obsession maybe. I, well, so I think there may be two reasons that fueling is less of an obsession for climbers as it is for runners. One of which I think is physiological in that runners are actually burning their engine at a much higher, you know, RPM, let's say than climbers. It's like mm -hmm. runners are fundamentally burning more calories and they need more fuel. Uh, is it same with cyclists, you know, whatever, but basically their heart rate is way higher the whole time and they're just, they're just burning more calories. So, you know, fuel matters more. And I would actually say that the length of most running events, at least for speed things are often longer than, than most climbing speed records. Um, a lot of the climbing speed records are in the sub hour range. So realistically you don't need to eat or drink. You just do the thing and then you're done, um, mm -hmm. for the no speed record we and that's two hours so it made sense to have a little bit of food and water we probably could have done without but it made sense to have uh something so we actually each had a set of uh like blocks you know sort of like little energy chews already open in our pocket so that because there's really nowhere you're, you should stop but there was like one spot where it made sense for me to belay for a second so i would just like shove some in and then like that was my one sort of fuel stop halfway up and then the season that we were working on the nose just by sheer good fortune uh, somebody had abandoned a bunch of water on a ledge that's like not one of the normal parts of the route, uh, basically above El Cap Tower uh, behind uh, Texas Flake. Somebody had abandoned a bunch of water, um, but basically it's an interesting spot in that people climbing past it couldn't booty it that easily because their bags get hauled on a different spot. So basically it was like mid pitch. So somebody leading isn't going to stop and grab a bunch of gallons of water. And then the bags take a different route anyway. So nobody booted it for the whole season. It was just like a bunch of water stuck in the spot that nobody could get to. But so it meant that every time we climbed the wall, there was a spot halfway where we could just take a sip of water just from these like jugs that had been abandoned. And we're just like, oh, that's just good fortune. You know, and that's kind of the thing with climbing speed records is that you just have to take what's given, you know, like sometimes there's fixed gear. Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes there's water. Like sometimes some random Japanese climber will like hand you a snack and you're like, oh, 
arigato, you know, and then you just keep going as fast as you can, like eating some weird Japanese candy. And you're like, cool. You know, it's like you take what you can get. Actually, and that's one of the funny distinctions with FKTs is that that would all count as supported technically. But as a climber, you're like, no, that is just like on any given day, you don't really know what's going to be happening on the wall. Like there might be. And oftentimes there is somebody set up in a freaking portal edge in the middle of one of your pitches. And you're kind of like shizzle. Now I have to climb over their portal edge, you know, but that's just part of the speed record is that on some days conditions are harder and some days conditions are easier and you just never really know what you're going to get. But sorry, that was a big detour from your talk about fueling, but (laughs) it's just like speed records for climbing are just a different thing, I think. That's a good point regarding the burning calories. Uh, runners and cyclists are just, you know, they're just little engines, like you said. There's so much less technical things happening, so much less logistics. You're just like this little engine going off. And particularly in running, it becomes a big issue because the jostling, your stomach is kind of going up and down. So it's easy to get an upset stomach, which is sort of a weird thing. But a quick clarification, there's something called trail angels. And if someone gives you something that you didn't specifically request or set up, that would not be a support. So you can be Hmm. given things randomly, just a little nuance there. Uh, But in terms of that, that's true. So like if you're doing an unsupported speed record on like the Appalachian Trail, but you just walk by somebody who's like, have some water, you're like, sweet mercy. You like as long as you don't ask for it, you're allowed to have it. Uh, yeah, and you can even ask for it. It's the way the distinction between support and self-support is and supported. It's someone just for you. That's all it is. You see what I mean? Mm. If it's someone, if your mother hands you a cookie, that's support. If you walk, if you hitchhike into town and go to a five-star Michelin restaurant, that's self-supported because anyone else could do it too. So that's the distinction there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then, so what's unsupported or is unsupported self-supported basically? No, there's three. And so unsupported means, no, you're carrying everything on your back except yeah, okay. water. Water, you, oh. you're not going to carry all that. So you're from start to finish, you're carrying all your food on your back, and water is just whatever you can find along the way. Hmm. Yeah, so many yep. rules. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. It's annoying. It's annoying. Like you say, you don't have to worry about it. You should do what works best. You know, I was doing a, this big route out in Canyonlands a few years ago, you know, kind of out in the middle of the desert. And Peter and I suddenly got to this little road. We said, yeah, okay, run. Okay, fine, run this road. He said, Peter, let's not do, I don't want to walk this road. Let's just, let's just hitch the road. Totally. And which is, you know, which is kind of, you know, low class, but we weren't going for any FKT. It's just like, I don't want to walk the road. Let's just hitch the road. And then we're off into the middle of nowhere again for the next couple of days. It'll be great. And he kind of goes, okay. So I put out my thumb, this Ranger truck goes by, screeches, does a U-turn, comes back around. We're thinking, oh, maybe shouldn't have done that. And out hops this friend of mine. (laughs) <laughs> and seen her in years. And so this ranger gives us a ride to the trailhead. We chats us up. We have a great time. She gives us some beta on where the water is and drops us off and says, have a, have a good trip. So that to me is a positive example of just let it flow. Mm-hmm. No, that is, that is the best. I mean, yeah, that's, you, you, you want to meet people. Like you say, if you're going through the South, South pole, I've, you know, you've met people, I've met people. You want to meet these people. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, I mm-hmm. think culture is part of it. Someone once asked me if I wanted to go for the FKT and the Hayduke Trail. You know, this is uh, named after a character in the Edward Abbey mm-hmm. Monkey Wrench Gang story, of course. And this goes from essentially Zion National Park 
to Arches National Park or the reverse. Hmm. I said, no, 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 I don't want to do that for time. You know, it's cultural. You know, I want to get off in Escalante, Utah and have a beer at the local bar and listen to them tell me about the good old days and how the tourists have ruined everything and get into this huge argument. You know, that's, it's a cultural experience. Yeah, it's classic. I mean, I think I, I totally agree that ultimately you just don't want the rules to get in the way of having a good experience doing the thing that you're actually doing. You know, it's like right. you don't want the levels of support or, you know, the specifics of the timing to get in the way of just doing a cool thing that you're psyched on. Right. With a parameter that I think we're all here going to agree on, environmental damage, we don't do that. I mean, if, if the mm -hmm. rule is don't cross the Native American reservation, don't do it. Don't go into the fire closure. Don't trespass. So don't go into official closures. You know, if you're going to harm the environment, don't for any reason ever litter and do things like that. So there are parameters for the environment that we abide by. How about official closures that are only closed for safety? So they seem a little bit silly. <laughs> well, for the, <laughs> well, uh, this, these, we got, you're asking some tough questions here. Well, so and, uh, yeah, because, uh, I, I, I asked because <laughs> I did the Zion Traverse a couple years ago, but they freaking closed the whole way in from the East or whatever, you know, the weeping rock trail is closed because of some they catastrophic sure landslide or something. But and they have this crazy Jurassic Park fence. And you did it anyway. What, yeah. Well, so I didn't know about it at the, <laughs> at the time necessarily. But then one of my friends was living in in climbing in Zion a bunch, and he was like, "Oh, there's this crazy Jurassic Park fence up. It's like 20 feet high with like cyclone. It's full like stay out. Like you will die." And I was like, "That sounds crazy." And I was going to do it in a weekend. And I was like, it's going to be super busy. Like, this all seems terrible. So instead, I just went that night. So instead of like waiting till the next day, we had climbed all day. Instead of waiting and going the next morning, I just went at like, you know, as soon as the moon rose, started at like 10 p.m. so that I could do the weeping rock part in the middle of the night when there's nobody around. Because that was one of those things where I was like, well, obviously, I'm not at all worried about the avalanche debris stuff. Like, you know, I can piece my way down this hillside, whether there's a trail or not, like that's fine. But I definitely didn't want to be the guy that's like hopping this giant fence in the middle of the day in the, one of the most popular parks in the country. So I was like, Oh, you don't want to be the, the bad example. You know, when some kid sees you like jumping a fence and, but I was like, Oh, as long as I'm doing it at three in the morning, it should be fine. And so, yeah, so I did, I had a great experience. It was all pretty fun. Did the Zion Traverse mostly by moonlight. It turned out it was less scenic in the dark because when the moon set, I was like, it actually turns out this all kind of sucks. And then later my wife <laughs> was like, why did you do it in the middle of the night? Like what an idiot. And I was kind of like, well, I really wanted to do it. And I didn't think I could do it in the day. And, but whatever. Well, wait a minute. What's the beta in that? I've been wondering about that. Yeah. They had this landslide and the park just kept it closed. They could easily reopen it, but they're not doing that. So what's the beta on that, Alex? I've been wondering about that closure myself. Is it a 20 foot high fence? Oh, I actually don't even remember how I got over the fence, which means that it must have been trivial to climb the fence. I mean, that's whatever. Okay. The The bigger challenge was the route finding down the, you know, basically piecing together what was the trail because it is all obliterated mm -hmm. by landslide. But there were tracks here and there. And then no matter either way, you can just kind of, you know, meander your way down. It's just a little bit scary because you worry about getting cliffed out or, you know, and especially in the dark. I was like on siding downhill in the dark and I was trying not to use my headlamp because obviously... It's the only headlamp on the hillside, so it's like a little bit obvious if any rangers drive by or anything. So I was like, oh, you know, this all feels a little mega, but it turns out it was super chill. Well, that's a phenomenally good story. You're totally right. I can see that right now because I'm you know, really familiar with that. You don't want that little headlight bopping down that hillside, do you? But on the other hand, that's slabby and some dripping slabs. They don't call it weeping rock for nothing. So there are ways to go and ways not to go on that slope.
Yeah, but basically you, you try to follow what was the old trail as much as you can. So if you have like a good GPS or map, you know, of the old trail, you can basically follow that. But it's just been all wiped out quite a bit. So it's a little more scrambly and whatever. But it is weird that it hasn't all been fixed. They they need a, a new oh, CCC yeah. to get in there and do a bunch of hard labor. You know, it's like the, <laughs> the CCC that built all those trails originally. Oh, yeah. Well, look at Angel's Landing, you know, observation yeah. point. We, there's no that's, way you could do that today. That's probably what happened. There's no way you could do that today. And so for Weeping Rock, it's probably the same thing. They just don't got the brute force to get these things done anymore. Hmm. They haven't even tried to fix that. I was under the impression that that would be fixed in a year or two or something. They haven't even, do you know, is Zion still just closed from the east? Yeah, I called. I actually called and said, what's up? And they said, well, this is probably two years ago now. They said, we have not announced a date to reopen it. Huh. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. It is sad, especially so, because if they if they left it open, like if there was no fence, then it would just get reopened through use trails pretty quickly. Because even when I did it, there were some, you know, like it wasn't a nice built stone staircase, but you know, you could follow tracks through some of the sections. If you just let people go up and down, like there would be a decent trail, like a climbing trail. Right, Park Service is not keen on that. So you made yeah, it all the way out to Lee Pass, then is what I'm hearing. Is that right? Yeah, is that the end where uh, where like uh, Kolob is and everything? Yep, yep. Yeah, well, you did some running then. Okay, so yeah, Hannah, yeah. we have caught Alex. Have we not? We have caught Alex. Kind of walked right into that one, didn't he? He, if he did the Zion Traverse and made it out to Lee Pass, he ran across, uh, you know, Hop Valley. You did the whole thing. Yeah, I did jog some sections, and I forget. I think I actually <laughs> ran quite a bit at the end because I was. Uh, I think I don't remember how long I did in, but I remember that I was coming in close to I don't I don't even know what a decent time is. But, you know, I was coming in like sub 10 or some 12 or sub 14 or, you know, there was some like nice round number that I was like, oh, if I hustle, I can get below whatever. And so then I think I hustled the end quite a bit. Boy, this but, you but I felt terrible live- afterward. But <laughs> you felt okay. You had to add the the, the rejoinder there. You ran. Oh, you start off by saying you jog. Then you said you ran. Then you said you're going to hustle. You're a speed guy. It's in your blood. But then you I had to kind stuff. of say, yeah. You had, kind of had to say, but I felt terrible afterwards. But, you know, I kind of, you know, when you do an ultra, it's not like you're just jumping up and down too much at the end. So this is sort of normal. If I kind of, you know, a little heads up on that, I, Alex. You're a, you're a good athlete. You're a good endurance athlete. Man, you, you did the speed record on Zion, didn't you? At some point, the Zion uh, traverse. Well, or, or well, something. You did the speed record through Zion, going north to south, or something weird, or right. Oh, maybe you're definitely no. Right, tons of weird, tons of weird. So I did the yeah. north south traverse with Jared, and then yeah, Jared, that's the one. Ryan, I was... Yeah, but we did trans zion we we did uh, zion man that's what jared called jared campbell you know, 10 <laughs> time man. finisher of hard rock zion man because we combined canyoneering running and a little bit of summits and went mm. from lee pass all the way out but mostly not on trail so we went up north and south guardian angels Northgate peaks things like that and they did imlay canyon down to the narrows and hiked up mm. and out orderville canyon and canyoneering is kind of fun you know sort of like yeah. climbing except you're going down instead of going up. Yeah, that's cool. Well, so when you when you did some of those big FKT, big traverses, you know, did you feel busted at the end? Or was that like normal, like kind of fun? <laughs> 
hmm, this is this is interesting. So I think you have to redefine. You have to frame this in a certain fashion. Of what does it mean to feel busted? Right? It's a it's a framework. It's a state of mind. It's it's how you're evaluating more than how your body is feeling. Wouldn't you say? Well, I'm asking specifically, how is your body feeling? Like, were were you limping, and could you run within the next few days? <laughs> okay, no limping could run slowly within the next few days. The main thing in Zion is your shins are just scratched as shit. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you kind of look down, your legs are just sort of bleeding from all that manzanita. And then you got to, you just, we literally throw our socks away because they're full of cheap grass seeds. But yeah. other than that, you know, it's, it goes okay. But the key thing is you want to drink, you want to eat, right? Because if you don't do that, then you're going to feel really busted. So you want to keep up in the food and the hydration and something, you know, I mean, gosh, Hans, Tommy, uh, it's Alex Haley. I mean, uh, Colin Haley, you want to have a good partner. I mean, people mm-hmm. say, what's the key to success in this stuff? Well, first have a good partner. Second, get out of bed early in the morning. You know, that other <laughs> than that, it's, it's kind of details. That, that is, that is really true. So, so much having a good partner is just maintaining high morale, like someone that's fun to hang out with, where you're actually having a good time, you're enjoying yourself. It just makes doing the whole thing so much more fun. Right. And safer. I mean, you got all yeah. this first aid stuff. You got all, you buy this, buy that, get this. And I, I've never carried a first aid kit in my life. I just go with people like Jared Campbell and Peter Backwin. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a, lot, a lot more safe than carrying this little bag of something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. It was lovely chatting with you guys. Yeah. I would just like to thank, again, you, Hannah, for hosting us. I really enjoyed this conversation. And in particular, thank the American Alpine Club. Boy, been around for a long time. Super credible. What stature. And staying up with the time, staying up with everything about this sport. So thank you to the American Alpine Club. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This podcast is presented by Outdoor Research. Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. Don't forget, use promo code ALPINESHIRT23 to join, renew, or donate between June 1st and June 30th, 2023 to get the AAC's limited edition Alpine tea. Snag it now at AmericanAlpineClub.org.